0: Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the DailyDownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it DailyDownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, DailyDownForce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out DailyDownForce.com. That's DailyDownForce.com. And I'll see you in for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand. Pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first steel they built, I bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were they had the, the pliers had been red before the paint had worn yeah. off. cars and there were really no match but he thought he was doing pretty good and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and i was the chicken and so he ran off the boat <laughs> and actually he was the guy who who caught junior johnson at his daddy's still when junior got tangled up in a in a barbed bar fence <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Seam Bolt Podcast.
1: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice,
0: Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things
1: NASCAR history.
0: Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where Rick Mast will always be the master of all he surveys.
1: (laughs) I don't know about that.
0: Well, I would trust Rick before I would trust many other people in the sport. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve... This is our 25th episode. This is our silver anniversary. Did you get me anything to celebrate?
1: Ah. Uh, yeah, I got you a Diet Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm parched. So, Steve, we've got so much to talk about in this episode. I wanted to go ahead and jump into the episode, but just real briefly. Buddy Parrot, another money quote right off the bat. Somebody was in for an ass whipping. <laughs> <laughs>
1: think I know what you're talking about.
0: Buddy could be a stand-up comedian. (laughs) Just the way that he puts stuff, he is just absolutely hysterical.
1: Well, I don't have to tell you this because you already know it, but even when, uh, you know, all of us were working together at scene every time we ended up with Buddy, Buddy was a great interview. And we weren't the only ones that agreed with that. He always attracted the media.
0: Now, who was your go-to guy on a slow news day?
1: Well, he was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no question about that. Now, it depends on the uh, on the uh, certain decade I worked. When I started out, I was fortunate enough to be friends with James Hilton. Oh. And he was a regular NAS- NASCAR gadfly. He'd tell me anything yeah. that was going on. And uh, later on, uh, you know, Buddy was one of them for sure. Later than that, the guy that got to be a go-to guy for a lot of us in the media, was someone you might not think of. And it was Jeff Burton. From the time he was a rookie, he was a very calm and reasoning presence in the garage area. And he would state, or he would almost philosophize
0: about yeah.
1: the issues of the day, something that he still does to this day. And then later in his career, he was named Person of the Year by NASCAR Illustrated and the word that we used in the headline on the cover is probably the best word to fit Jeff Burton, and that is the diplomat, and he was so good at it.
0: Well, my go-to guy on a slow news day, <laughs> let's just say he was not a diplomat, <laughs> and that's what made him, well, so interesting, James Finch. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, baby. Anytime I needed something to write, all I had to do was go to James, and he would be rolling almost before I got there and basically just had to stick a microphone in his face and I got good copy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I remember James very well and he was a hoot.
0: In our second segment, we're going to go back in our memory banks a little bit. We continue to just get awesome questions and we had one question about our favorite press box memories and we had another about our favorite NASCAR seasons. So... I'm looking forward to chatting about that. Okay. Sounds good to me. Buddy, 1990 is probably one of the biggest upsets in NASCAR history. You're working for Wickham Racing with driver Derek Cope. What was your mindset going into that race? What was your outlook? What were you expecting the team to be able to do that week? We expected to win the race. Did you really?
2: Oh yeah. We had a lot built in that car, okay? Harry used to say that a lot, so we got a lot built in that car, you know. But we had an engine that was built by Randy Dorton who got killed on the airplane going to Martinsville, Virginia, was the head engine guy. Well see, a lot of people didn't know that Randy had a brother named Keith Dorton. Keith Dorton was was a genius. And I think Keith Dorton still is doing motor stuff. I don't know. But but Keith had worked a program with Harry Hyde back in the day with the tubes and the manifold and things. And um, we were fortunate enough to get one of those motors. Okay. You know how I was fortunate enough. I got my car. I got my car. Went down there and begged him. Please build me a motor for Daytona. And we got the Daytona. I told Derek. Derek and I had a conversation. I said every time that three car goes out, I said I want you behind him. I want you to learn what you can learn from him. And if he get, if he pulls down pit road and he gets out of his car and goes to the men's room, I want you to follow him in there. <laughs> I want you to follow, draft him right in there to find out what's going on okay he laughed but but that's the truth when Dale went out we were right there with him, but we had a fast car we had a great car we uh the car was built by Robert Robert G jr in a little shop over there that's off of twenty nine I think they finally mowed that shop and for the interstate inter- interchange and all that but uh spent a lot of hours a lot of <laughs> intriguing ingenuity <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting somewhere yeah. built that car but it was legal it was legal everything was legal to pass the templates and did a whole deal but it was a fast car and Derek cope was not well bless his heart i put him to the extreme <laughs> pressure uh, on the last pit stop yeah he did he was screaming loose loose i'm loose i'm loose so we went out and knocked about four degrees, five degrees of spoiler out right, of him.
0: Out of it, not in it, but out of you it. You mentioned that you kind of put him to the test on that last caution because you kept him on the racetrack yeah. to give him track position. But Dale comes in, takes on four tires, and almost as soon as the green flag falls for the restart, you know, he goes blowing back by. What were you thinking at that point?
2: Well, again, you know, uh, uh, the best position for us to be in was behind Dale, and knew that was going to happen at the end of the race. You know, it was nose to tail going into going down the backstretch. Or we were in position. Let's just say that. I don't know how close we were because I could I don't remember seeing it, but I know that I know that we were uh, uh, we're in second place. I say that second place would have been like winning the race to
0: us obviously you couldn't see anything from where you were on Pitt Road. What was your first indication that something had happened?
2: Well my first indication of course when the, when, the, when the grandstands exploded you know and when you can hear the roar of the crowd over the roar of the engines then you know you're doing something because I'd already told Coke I didn't tell him I, I, we planned our strategy. I want you to win this race whatever it takes because that three-car would do the same thing, whatever it took. So my first indication was he finally drafted up to him, and knowing Cope hadn't been in that position before, and either a block was going to happen and Dale pulled out, well, Cope was already running wide open, and he wasn't going to let off, and boom, there's a wreck. But it didn't happen that way, obviously. My next thought was to prepare the crew See, there was going to be a big preparation of crew because somebody's going to get their ass whooped. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there, there was an ass whipping coming. And uh, not by Dale. Uh, I, saved his, I saved his little fanny many a times. My, my deal was that I was going to take chocolate. Okay, because chocolate was the biggest and the ugliest. Okay. I said, Y'all give me chocolate. When he comes up here, y'all just let me have chocolate and y'all take the rest of them because <laughs> chocolate's going to try to do all the damage. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, we, uh, but it didn't happen that way. And of course, uh, chocolate and them didn't come, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs>
0: I don't know how to follow up on that one. (laughs) What is your reaction today when you hear somebody say that that was just a fluke win? Is there an ass whipping coming?
2: (laughs) Let me just say this. Regardless of what people say, they can't take the win away. That rhymes, okay? But as I told you earlier in this broadcast, our strategy was go out, run on his bumper as close as you can, learn as much as you can and everything's gonna be okay. And if it really had come to the last lap, the last corner, I really think Cope would if Cope could have gotten to him, Cope would have spun him. Simple deal. But then then
0: <laughs> then all hell would have broke loose, okay? I've never been convinced that Derek wasn't gonna pass him some way, he somehow anyway. Him. We had the fastest car. You know, he might have had older tires, but he was right on Dale's bumper going down that backstretch. And, you know, obviously he had instructions from you to win the race however possible, by whatever means necessary. So I've never been convinced. But that wasn't,
2: that was, that was a, seven. yeah, well, that was an un, unknown. I mean, that was a, a, a given back then, you know, the bumper rule uh, to win the race on the last, and, and Dale knew it. Everybody knew it, you know, and they're still doing it. Makes for exciting racing.
0: How did you wind up over at Penske Racing?
2: One favor to another, um, I went to work at Penske Racing. Don Miller called me one night and told me, said, well, you saved my life one time. I need you to come over here and save it again.
0: Holy cow.
2: And that's how I got the job as crew chief uh, for, uh, for Rusty.
0: Yep. And that was in 1992. Yep. They were struggling pretty hard in 1992. It only won one race. Right. 1993 comes along, and you guys set the place on fire winning 10 races. What did you do?
2: You know, I tell everybody that uh, I'd never walked in. I mean, as long as I'd been racing, you know, I mean, I'd been... You know, two door garage places and, uh, you know, no, nothing elaborate. And when I walked in that, when I walked into Penske Racing, I said, man, what in the world? How can I not win with this? But uh, we had some great guys working, already working on that car. As a matter of fact, my son Todd was working there. One of the things, one of the stipulations I told Don Miller, I said, now, here's the deal. You know, I'd love to come over here and work. But if anything happens, I want to tell you, Todd was here first. And if anybody goes, I go before Todd goes. And so he, he's okay. But it wound up that Todd and I left about the same time. Uh, he went to uh, take a crew chief job at, uh, at the 28 car. We had a uh, media tour come in. Me and Rusty, we're sitting at the table, and they're all asking questions and all this. And said, well, buddy, what do you think about this uh, team? I said, well, we're going to win 10 races this year. Rusty about fell out of his chair, you know, and he looked over at me, <laughs> me like, what? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So we had a wild night in, um, in Griffin, Georgia. I don't know why we always have <laughs> deals at Griffin, Georgia, but I said, that's got to be my lucky place because... I didn't get killed. But we went to a place, a little country bar down there, and I think my bar bill, our bar bill was right at $850. You know, Y'all
0: know, you did do it upright. Oh, yeah.
2: And uh, Don Miller called me in the office He says, Buddy, what is wrong? What's what's the deal here? I said, What do you mean, Don? He said, Well, I just got a bill on your credit card for $850. I said, Yeah, that's plus tip. <laughs> <laughs> 150 or $200 yeah. tip, you know, whatever. He said, I don't know about this. I said, well, Don, let me ask you something. I said, we worked all year. Those guys worked all year, and we had nine wins down, and I figured we, we needed to party before the big party. And so we go out the next day, and we win the Atlanta race. First thing, Rusty looked at me, and he looked at me and said, we didn't win the championship, but we got 10 races, you know. And so, uh, but that was a that was a letdown because we had won 10 races and we didn't win the championship, and uh, it just wasn't our time. See, Rusty's two flips, you know, a lot of people don't, they don't really realize that those two flips in 93 took us, I mean, that was two races that we were completely demolished and still fought back and won, you know, a lot of races, but... But Rusty, the main thing was Rusty finally got his wrist broke, you know, or cracked or whatever. Good Lord, it was just took a liking to him on, on those crashes. If I had, my mentality had thought more of championships instead of race wins, I'd probably have 15 or 20 race wins and two championships, okay? Easily the 11-point deal and with the Rusty deal. There was two cars there that that we should have won. Uh, we had an opportunity to win the championship and didn't do it. Okay, a lot of people don't get that opportunity, you know. And having said that, it seems like that uh, one of our our situations is that to be successful, to be super successful in the sport, you've almost have to have a championship on your resume. I'm a believer that. I just like those W columns. You know, I like to win.
0: You want to bring home trophies every week.
2: Right. As opposed to at the end of the year. Exactly.
0: 94, you have another pretty good year. You won eight races. Mm -hmm. Switch scars, too. But you finished third in the championship, and you leave at the end of the year. And you said that you might tell me why you you, – what happened?
2: Again, you know, old hindsight, had I known – the projection of the, the way things were going to happen and all that, with Roger's deal and Roger moving all of his racing deal down here and getting into one one situation, um, I had worked a long time and had won a lot of races with the help of good good crew, you know. And and I'll never tell you that it was the ideal, you know. It was we we won, but um, had an opportunity like old D W did. It was about the bucks and lo and behold, you know, the bucks just didn't pay off. You know, that buck didn't have any horns <laughs> 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 or somebody shot them off or something. But anyway, I just, uh, uh, and, and looking back again, you know, Rusty and I, man, R- Rusty and I were, we were close. Uh, just like today. i, I Consider Rusty a friend when when he and I both when I told him I was leaving, uh, we both had tears. You know, did you really? Yep. Rusty's a good man, and I, and you know what? He and I, he and his son Stephen and I have gotten to be uh, a lot tighter uh, through the years from riding motorcycles and surges and doing things like that. I don't see Rusty day to day, but I know he's always there. There was a few things that went on at Penske. That I I was not really in tune to. And then all of a sudden, an opportunity came along. I thought it was a great opportunity. Turned out to be uh, the driver and the driver's father and all is the one I dealt with. And Uh Steve Grissom. Grissom drove the uh, Diamond Ridge car, see, that's the one I left to go to. And um, what happened was that, you know, Gary Bechtel. His family built the Hoover Dam. So I guess he felt like he could come in and conquer NASCAR. It seems like times that I've tried the Ellis thing and the guys that had bukus of money, uh, they spend it all before I got to them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So you can help them spend. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, let me just say one thing. If it had not been for me, and you can quote me on this all you want to, if it hadn't been for me leaving Rusty's for that opportunity that I thought was amazing as far as financially for Judy and I, that I would not have had the opportunity or have myself in position to work with the best car owner I work for, Jack Roush, okay? And he's going into NASCAR Hall of Fame and very deserving, good man, and I enjoyed every day that I worked for him.
0: You crew chief for Jeff Burton in 1996 and 97, won three races with Jeff in 1997, including the inaugural race at Texas. But at the end of the year, you decided to take a step back and come off the road. And in 2001, you retired for good. What led to that decision? What happened was that when we
2: we started the deal was in Robin Rosso's little shop in Mooresville. Jack and I both visited that shop, and and uh, he said, "What can you do in there?" I said, "We can win some races." I said, "I won a lot right across the fence, right there. That was beside Rusty's place, you know." Yeah. And uh, so we started the Burton program right there. But then, as as it grew, and as as he cut off the supply or whatever in um, down at Liberty, when he moved everything to the airport, Burton and I both. Try to get Jack to leave us right up there. Let Mark see. I had Mark and Jeff running a cup cars and we were running, uh, two, uh, uh, Bush cars, uh, that little shop. We went over and got another little place for the Bush team, but we tried to get Jack to leave uh, me and Burton together with, with Frankie and, and, and the crew to stay there. But, um, he said it just wouldn't work Far as We just need to be in the airport down, down there. And so when all that moved in there, I lost a lot of interest because I wasn't, I wasn't asked to do a lot, you know. But if I had wanted to, I could have stayed there. I could probably still be there with Jack. I'd be doing something. But my heart wasn't in it. You know where my heart was? My heart was riding Harleys, man. <laughs> I love to ride Harleys. You wanted to get in the wind. I told Jack, I said, you know what? I said, Man, I'm having a heck of a time here, Jack. And he said, What what do you mean, buddy? I said, I can't find time to ride my motorcycle He laughed. But he offered me to that I could stay there and do a lot of different things, you know, but again, I'd kinda of lost that little racing. see, I like to race. I might not call all the shots, but I like to have some say-so. Well, that was all eliminated through, you know, having to work with different uh, drivers, and they threw me into with uh, with Kurt Busch and and stuff like that. But again, never had a crossword with Jack Roush, and still, and I never will, and I'm going to hug his neck when he gets in, inducted into the Hall of Fame, and I hope I was a part of that. How are you spending most of your time these days? Well, this year, well, I took off. I, I decided that I'd ran so hard that uh, Judy died in 2016, July. So the rest of the day, and, and uh, for 17, I I ran pretty hard. Uh, and I decided I was going to live in my house for a year, me and my doggie, Blue. And uh, I've enjoyed it, but I'll... I'm planning to do a little more. I haven't. I didn't go to any rallies and stuff. I lost my rally partner, you know, Robert Yates, and that took a, a sting. Uh, that took a lot out of it, you know. But I, uh, I go to some races. Uh, I'm still on the voting committee for the Hall of Fame, and I'm also uh, uh, I work with the um, the judge deal on the uh, on the rules, not rules, but infractions of the rules, which. I haven't been called on this year, and I'll tell you something. They've got things working pretty well. I also want to reiterate that the thing that I enjoyed most was that I started out racing with the Gardeners for a team that I could really win with. Right. The The team I started with, of course, was Harry Hyde, and we won a lot of races, but I wasn't a crew chief, but I felt like I was part of it, like everybody else did, and had Feral Harris, and, uh, and the list goes on. Without an opportunity to win, but in the end of 34 years of whatever, you know, to get to be able to get with with Jack Roush Racing and end my career. And the reason I ended my career again was because of um, I was ready, um, and I'm so glad I did. You know why? Because I didn't know my wife was going to be gone um, in in that shorter time. But having said that, how many people do you know? That could spend. uh, I retired. No one. She died in sixteen. How many people that you know that can have that many years of retirement together?
0: For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to VictoryJunction.org. 1990 Daytona 500, uh-huh. probably one of the most memorable Daytona 500s ever. And this is just one more detail about that race that maybe not a lot of people know. You know, everybody knows that Dell Earnhardt was leading and dominated the day, but had a problem on the last lap and Derek Cope wound up winning. Right. I would assume that you were in the press box.
1: I was. What'd you see? What I most remember, and in fact, it is seared in my mind, is that there. are Going into the first turn, it's clear that Earnhardt has a lead by about a car length. They come out of the second turn, and Earnhardt drifts high up the track, just like he's opening a door for Cope to go on by. And everybody in the prize box, were stunned in the silence. What's happening here? And, of course, Derek goes right on by, and out of nowhere, wins the Daytona 500. Now, we could not figure out, at that time, what Dale's problem was. Found out later about the famous broken bell housing that he ran over and caused him to lose the lead. So that was, and I can see that picture to this day. We're all looking at each other in the press box of what the heck happened? Half of us could not believe that Earnhardt was going to lose that race. And the other half of us believed, well, maybe he could lose the race. But Derek Hope, you know, winning the Daytona 500, that is, that is crazy totally unpredictable. And it was. But the one thing that I talked to Derek about many times over the years since then was that everybody that wants to think it's a fluke that you won the Daytona 500, forget this one adage of racing. If you're in second place, you are in a position to win, particularly in a a kind of a race that you had with Dale. So you don't take anything away from the man who's in second place because he won the race. He was there to win the race. He was in a position to win, and that's what Derek did.
0: Well, that was before I got into the sport professionally. And I remember very well sitting in Sandy East Ep's living room watching the race, and Dale Earnhardt's going to win, and her husband was a big Dell fan, so he was cheering and everything. But the image that sticks in my mind is the CBS shot that had Teresa Earnhardt, otherwise known as she who must not be named. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I said it, and I'm not taking it back either. But there was a camera in the motor coach, and before that happened, Teresa had Taylor Nicole on her lap, who was a baby at the time. And Teresa was, you know, bouncing up and down, and she was cheering and all that. She had a big grin on her face. That happens, and Derek wins the race, and they go back to the motor coach. I know what you're going to (laughs) say. And poor Taylor Nicole is just screaming her head off. Right. (laughs) Right. I can only imagine what transpired with She Who Must Not Be Named in that motor coach.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm sure she was very disappointed. I don't know what she may have said or done to set Taylor off, but, uh, you know, that was not a pleasant situation for either one of them.
0: Imagine what it must have been like from Buddy Parrott's perspective. (laughs) I have to ask you this. Who would be your pick in a fight between Buddy Parrott and Chocolate Myers? <laughs> uh, a draw. <laughs> <laughs> I would pay to see it, though, I'll tell you that. Oh, that would be some kind of row. Well, I can say this it would be bloody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, it would.
0: When this race is mentioned on social media, be it Facebook or Twitter or what have you. A lot of keyboard warriors tend to call it a fluke win. They say Derek just lucked into it. What's your reaction to that?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of times that I hear the word fluke win. Like, for example, a guy you may never heard of before or never expected to win is in the lead when a rainstorm comes. Yeah. Calls off the race. Yeah. I think the listeners need to pay attention here. Be it rain, be it a broken bell housing, being in that last lap accident, being a blown engine, all of those things have been part of NASCAR since NASCAR began hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And just like a dominant car can go out and win a race, those items that I just mentioned can be factors in the outcome of a race. They're there. There's nothing you can do about it. They are there, and they are part of raising it. And if they mean that they take victory away from one guy and give it to another, so be it.
0: Well, the name of the game is getting to the checkered
1: flag first. And the name of the game is being, as I said earlier, the name of the game is to be in a position to win. Because if you're in fifth place behind Dale Earnhardt and he runs over the bell housing, you're not going to win.
0: You know, and Dale did handle it in a classy manner. He made a very famous quote where he said, it's the Daytona 500, not the Daytona 499. Derek won that race.
1: Which backs up my point. Not the Daytona 499, it's the Daytona 500. Finished the race to win the race. He couldn't finish.
0: Now, I want to jump ahead a couple of years to 1993. Buddy Parrott and Rusty Wallace, they won 10 races together. But again, like in 1979 with Darrell Waltrip, Buddy doesn't get the championship at the end of the year. He made a comment that if he had always concentrated on championships as opposed to race wins, he might have had at least two or three over the years. Steve, what's the difference between the two?
1: The difference between the two is when you are going for a championship, you adopt a strategy that's different than simply going out for victories. Simply going out for victories means you don't care where you end up in the points that day. You just say to yourself, going to go out and win the race, and if I wreck, I wreck. You go out to win. It's it's all no holds barred.
0: And you stretch fuel mileage. Absolutely, take you, a gamble. You go 150 miles on a tank that might hold 140.
1: But if you're going for a championship, you don't do that. No,
0: you come in and you get your gas and you get your top five finish or yeah, top ten finish, exactly. as opposed to.
1: The Maybe possibly you, the, the only win. time you do take a chance is when you're in a very, very tight race to win a championship. And something like a good gamble could make all the difference. But most of the time, that doesn't happen. And I think Buddy Parrott and Rusty Wallace, they played for wins more than they did for a championship.
0: Steve, in the end, how do you think that Buddy will be remembered by NASCAR fans?
1: I think very fondly. Let's just talk about Buddy the Man. We both know how outgoing, and personable, and friendly he can be. We also know how competitive and determined he is, and how he will stand up for what he believes in, and how he will protect those around him, okay? And I think they will remember him for the many, many victories he won, including a Daytona 500. All in all, I think Buddy Parrott will go down as one of the most liked crew chiefs in the sport.
0: Hello, I'm Terry Labani, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, we got a tweet from Elton Johnny Dangerously <laughs> at Desert Plains 496. I would love to know how people come up with some of these Twitter handles.
1: That was a good movie, Johnny Dangerously. <laughs>
0: So, Elton Johnny Dangerously, at Desert Plains 496, wanted to know, what do you and Steve say are the greatest seasons in NASCAR history? Mm. Ooh,
1: that's a tough one. Yeah. I've seen a lot of good ones. Off the top of your head. Off the top of my what head. What would you say? 1992.
0: I would tend to agree with that. When you consider everything that played into that season as a whole, the storylines were just absolutely Amazing. Bill Elliott was in his first season with Junior Johnson, Junior Johnson yeah. and Crew Chief Tim Brewer. Who knows how that was going to play out. You also had Davey Allison, who had just one of the most tumultuous seasons anybody's ever had. And his Crew Chief, Larry McReynolds, made the comment one time, if there's another team that went through as much as what we did that year, I'd like to see it. Because he won the Daytona 500. He got hurt, I believe, at Bristol, hurt his ribs, won the next week at North Wilkesboro in a flag jacket. Right. Then he has that just this terrible, terrible, terrible wreck at Pocono where right. he flipped so badly yeah. and wound up severely hurt. Right. But kept right on racing. Right. And then over everything at Michigan in August, his brother Clifford loses yeah. his life right. in a Bush series practice session. Now He comes back, and somehow, some way, he wins at Phoenix, takes the points lead, and he goes into that race as the points leader. Right. That was a heck of a story. I mean, just an amazing story. And how he got through that season is beyond me. And then you have Alan Kawicki. Right. Slow and steady all year. Nothing flashy. But he has himself in position, just like you said about the 1990 Daytona 500. He had himself in position,
1: right, and that was something of a tremendous effort, because if I'm not wrong, I remember I think it was after the second Dover race, yeah, and Allen himself said we're out of it. Yeah, he was what two
0: hundred and forty something? something yeah points yeah. yeah,
1: And he said, well, we were out of it. lo and behold, he comes back over the last races of the season to, as we have said, put himself in a position. To win a championship. Now, nobody coming into that race at Atlanta would ever figure that it would come down to a race between Bill and Allen that came down to a race that was filled with strategy like that. It started to build up into a situation where we were coming into the last race of the year. And correct me if I'm wrong, there were five guys. Six. Yeah. A, yeah, a, six. had a shot the yeah. championship, and
0: uh, it, well, three of those legitimately. Yeah, and the other three: Mark Martin, Harry Gant, and Kyle Petty. Right, <laughs> the top three would have had to fall out on the pace laps or something. Yeah. So,
1: I, yeah, I remember. Mathematically,
0: right. mathematically, but, they had a shot.
1: But what the race boiled down to was, uh, you know, and Davy Allison, one of the guys that was in contention, was taken out in a wreck with Ernie Irvin. That's yeah. right. Nothing unusual there. But anyway, (laughs) Hey, you said that. I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I meant back then. But in any case, it it boiled down to a race of not only speed, but of tremendous strategy between Bill Elliott and Alan Kowicki. Alan Kawicki was the sentimental favorite, no doubt. I don't have to tell you why, about how he raced with his own team, okay, and was a dark horse (laughs) at darn near everything he did. But he came to a point where he could win the championship. And as you have explained in your book so eloquently, it came down to his reasoning and deduction that if he could lead one more lap than Bill, he'd have enough points to go ahead and win the championship. And among the drama of that race was everybody watching the two of them go after it. And then on a sentimental note, it was Richard Petty's last race. Yes, sir. And that was a big, big dramatic moment. He fell out of the race and crashed. And I remember his car caught a little bit of fire. Am I right? I think so. Oh, yeah.
0: It caught yeah. fire. It and, got- and he announced over
1: live TV, bring me an effing fire extinguisher. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Richard Petty said that. And
1: I, I have also <laughs> given him the quote. Now, he's told me he didn't say it, but he always says it with a smile on his face. That he said, well, I wanted to go out in the blaze of glory, but this is not <laughs> what I had in mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was the first race that I was ever actually paid to cover. I went to the home newspaper office that I was working for at the time, and Steve, they gave me a check for $300. Oh, boy. Whoa. (laughs) I was on top of the world, buddy. I didn't have to sleep in my car or anything like that, but I can just remember so much about that weekend and everything going on with Richard, it being his last race, the championship and all that. I mean, just crazy, just a crazy amount of drama in that race. Yeah, I would consider that certainly the best Winston Cup season that I've ever been involved in.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. so many sides for us, that yeah. one race, yeah, that uh, we could be here for the entire podcast talking about that. But in the end, it culminated with, as you mentioned with Davey, there were other drivers that culminated in a season of drama for several competitors. And then in the last race of the year, it was a race of drama for all of the fans.
0: That would be probably my top Winston Cup season. As you know, I was the Bush series editor at Winston Cup scene, and my two favorite seasons were run back-to-back, 1998 and 1999. Steve, the only way that I can put it is that it was so much fun to be involved in that division at that time. You talk about personalities. Good not. I mean, there were personalities virtually in every single hauler. There was the Randy LaJoy and Buckshot Jones, (laughs) and it was fun to talk to both of them. Steve, there were drivers like Jason Keller and Shane Hall. I couldn't even tell you how many times that Jason and I would visit a Chinese buffet. As hard as that is to believe, we partook in more than one Chinese buffet over the years. Glenn Allen, not a name that would come to most everybody's minds, but I can tell you this. I mean, just a phenomenal personality. You had that punk kid, Dell Earnhardt Jr. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Matt Kenseth. Yeah you know, and their team. So it was just fun to be involved in that division at that time, because, you know, from the stories that you've told about your career, the Bush series at that time was probably what the Winston cup garage had been back in the seventies and
1: early eighties. Exactly. I agree with that a hundred percent.
0: And you had team owners like Bill Baumgartner, who is to this day, one of my favorite personalities, Randy LaJoy. I'm sorry, man, but Bill Baumgartner is one of my favorite guys. So, (laughs) Uh, But team owners like Bill Baumgartner and David Ridling and Dwayne Deese, who was involved in David Ridling's team, Uh, you had Bruco Motorsports, Clarence Brewer, Todd Wilkerson. I can remember going to a Stephen Curtis Chapman concert with Tad and Jody Geschichter, who are absolutely two of the finest, most upstanding people who have ever walked into a NASCAR garage. It was very much a family atmosphere.
1: I know exactly how you feel about that because it's exactly the way it was in the Cup Garage area about a decade earlier or two decades earlier. It was the same type of environment. I know that I enjoyed it very much, and I can certainly identify with you when you talk about those seasons in the Bush Series Garage.
0: Now, Steve, this is a question that came via direct message on Twitter. Patreon supporter, hey, Patreon supporter Aaron Bearden wanted to know about some of our favorite press box stories. Can we talk about that in public? <laughs> well,
1: you know, the press box stories that I like are the ones that are funny. And that happened a lot. I could be here all day talking about that like for example always had a pool in the press box that and- i never ever won <laughs> i didn't but not many you would draw a number out of a, a, a hat and if that number was a driver you had well one guy years ago <laughs> one guy years ago uh drew his number out and said do we hold on to these and al hamrick who was doing the uh, pool at the time said no stupid we're on the honor system you can, you, you can go ahead and throw it away but to go beyond you know simple comments and stories and stuff like that to me the best press puck story came out of the 1979 Daytona 500 now everybody knows oh this circ- should be good oh everybody knows the circumstances and it's coming down to the end of the race as Kyle Yarbrough and Donny Allison scrapping for the lead go Cast the start finish line under us and start heading in the second turn. Then they start beating and banging down the back stretch. And we're just all trying to see as best we can. And I got up and put one foot on the table behind me and one foot on my own table. And here I am balancing myself precariously because I'm trying to see what's going to happen. And all of a sudden they disappear. They disappear into the third turn infield. We can't see anything. It just hits me. I see Richard take the lead. I said, Rich is going to win the race. Rich is going to win the race. And old Tom Higgins is sitting beside me and says, to hell with that. I want to see that fifth fight coming up. <laughs> he called it. Sure enough. <laughs> Ken Squire comes booming over the PA and there's a fight in third turn. Yeah, and there's a fight. That was uh, uh, quite a wild day in the press box because after that race, we were all lost. I would explain this to our readers, you know.
0: Now, how am I going to compete with the 1979 Daytona 500, I, I, man? <laughs> Steve, I believe it's time we share the Oreo story.
1: I knew it would come to this.
0: When we were at Winston Cup scene, those of us who got to sit in the press box had two-way radios, and we called the race for the photographers on the racetrack and told them when there would be pit stops coming up or to watch a pack of cars. It was maybe getting a little squirreling to see if a wreck might be in the making or anything like that. So I don't even remember the racetrack. I want to say it was Dover. There was a wreck and I didn't call it. So anyway, the photographers got the what shots that they could. And during the caution, somebody came on the radio and said, Hey, Rick, man, what happened? Why'd you miss the wreck? And stupid me. I have no idea why I admitted what I admitted, but I made the mistake of saying, well, um, they've got Oreo cookies up here, and and I had one in my mouth, and I I just couldn't spit it out. (laughs) Oh, Steve.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you said that.
0: That became just an overwhelming running joke. Every time anything happened, you know. Hey, Houston must have been eating Oreos. Yeah. (laughs) He was stuffing (laughs) his face with Oreos. And there was a certain sense of, you know, being in an ivory tower, nice, cool, air-conditioned press box, obviously with food to eat while the photographers were outside, you know, running around, burning themselves up or freezing cold or whatever. So yeah, I got busted on that for a long time. People will still mention it to this day. My last race at Seen was the August race at Bristol in 2003. And I got my computer set up and walked out to the garage and I came back and there's this huge bag (laughs) of Oreo double stuffed cookies. (laughs) And you know what? I ate every one of them. (laughs) There's another incident that you might remember and it was, I guess, the closest I ever came to getting an ass chewing from you. Do you remember the old Richmond press box? Very much. The long, kind of narrow hallway, basically. Right. And, Steve, that was at a time when the Winston Cup division was sponsored by Winston Cigarettes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I know this story. Go ahead. Hey, you can't fire me. (laughs) The old Richmond press box was at the top of the grandstands. To even get there, you had to climb the grandstand. You know, at that time, you know, I was pretty hefty. This was before I'd lost my weight. This was before I became the amazing physical specimen that you see sitting before you now. Where? Where? (laughs) But you would get to the top of the grandstands, and I would be just out of breath. Well, then you open the door to the press box, and the smoke rolls out. Rolls out. You could barely see from one end of the press box to the other. And I don't remember what year it was. On the way to the racetrack, I stopped at an army surplus store. (laughs) And I bought a gas mask. (laughs) I put it on in the press box and wore it for maybe 20, 30 minutes to kind of make my point. And Steve, I don't know who contacted you, (laughs) but you in no uncertain terms informed me that I was to not bring that gas mask back to the racetrack.
1: (laughs) I was called by the R.J. Reynolds people. Oh, now they were very, oh. they were very diplomatic about it. They said we understand why he did, but please, <laughs> we don't need that at this point in time. And uh, could you say something to him? And I well, said, you
0: did that all right. Well, uh,
1: yeah, I felt <laughs> like I had to. But I want you to know something in the back of my mind. I agree with you 100%. Well, Steve, I
0: don't know what it is, but I, I do not have the ability to be politically correct. I just It's just not in me. So, <laughs> yeah, I got myself in trouble over that one. One other one that I really wanted to mention, at Milwaukee, at one time had an open air press box. And you would never think of Milwaukee as being just this blazing heat in the summer. But every year we went up there, it was just, I mean, just miserable hot. Again, I wasn't in the best shape, so it was doubly hard bringing all my insulation with me. But I would go up to the press box, and the seats were right next to race control, which was enclosed and air-conditioned. They were nice and comfortable in the press box when five feet away, I was about to die from heat stroke. So before the race, I got up there and I was setting up my notes and all that. And I heard this knocking on the window and I turned around it's John Darby and Kevin Triplett and Steve O'Donnell. They're acting like they're shivering and they're holding their arms and everything. And they're just, you know, we're miserable. We're cold. (laughs) And yes, I pulled a Jimmy Spencer and or Kyle Petty and I flipped off race control. (laughs) Eventually, they did enclose their press box. And this is the part I'll never forget. I went to my seat in the press box, and somebody from NASCAR had put together an engraved place sitting that said, Rick Houston, Winston Cup Sing," (laughs) And they had my space reserved for me in that nice, cool, air-conditioned press box.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You made your point.
0: I don't know if I made my point, but at least I didn't have heat stroke that day. At least they didn't forget you. now we had already recorded this week's episode of the scene vault podcast when the motorsports world got the really sad news that glenn wood had died on the morning of friday january 18th so steve you and i are back you're on the phone i'm at home and i just wanted to ask you since you knew that team so well having worked with them so closely for so long what is your memory of glenn going to be
1: In addition to all of their racing accomplishments, which will go down into history, of course, I think it should be known that Glenn and Leonard were uh, two fine, upstanding guys, especially Glenn. And they were a bit more than they seemed. And I think I was pleasantly surprised by that. And I think everybody should know that.
0: Now, Glenn never seemed to seek out the spotlight. seemed to me like he kind of enjoyed staying behind the scenes, so (laughs) to speak he did.
1: I'm not saying he went out there and tried to find the media. Uh, he didn't do that. He he was pretty close to the vest when it came to that sort of thing. And I'm sure that uh, being the head of that successful racing team, he never really wanted to dip his hand. Who would? But, but if you were someone that he knew and he, he appreciated or liked and you had a question or two for him, he always answered them. He always answered them. And uh, to me, that's all you can ask a man to do.
0: Now, Leonard always seemed to be kind of the go-to guy when it came to setups and mechanics and all that kind of thing. What was Glenn's contribution? Well,
1: I think Glenn was the innovator. And uh, okay. everybody's giving Leonard his due credit as a crew chief and an engine builder. But I think Glenn was the innovator. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. He was most likely the man behind that team's ability to produce fantastic pit stops at an age when they did not exist. He cut pit stop times in half way back a long time ago. In fact, the team was so good, they were asked to service the pits for IndyCar driver Jim Clark in Indianapolis. I think it was in 1965, and Jim Clark won the race. Because people up there had never seen that type of speedy routine in a pit stop. And I'm convinced Glenn was the director
0: of that. Steve, there are a handful of people who have been around NASCAR almost from the very start. And you can certainly say that about Glenn. Mm -hmm. What is his place in NASCAR history?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, let's put it this way. The team started in 1950 and joined the cup circuit in 1953. Yeah. So you add, you do the math. I mean, that's almost from the very, very beginning. And had success. And I might add, uh, had several Hall of Fame drivers drive for that team. Uh, You had the success of the team as uh, you had the racing success of the team and how much it contributed to the Hall of Fame careers of so many drivers. He's at the pinnacle of NASCAR. To me, there is no way that his accomplishments
0: and his contributions to NASCAR can be counted. That's how big he is. And he started out as a driver.
1: Yeah, he went four or five races before he decided to go ahead and uh, join uh, Leonard in the effort to create a team. So when he did that, that's when things began to change in NASCAR.
0: Steve, how do you think Glenn is going to be remembered? Uh, I would think
1: he would be remembered as one of the top, if not the top, team owners in NASCAR for several reasons. Innovation, success, and longevity, for sure. And you put those three together, and it's
0: hard to figure anyone else atop them. All right, Steve, thank you so much again for all your help in putting this podcast together, and certainly for being willing to join me again for this tribute to Glenn. Hey, Rick, I
1: really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And it's certainly worth the best efforts we've got to remember and honor the